North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today on The Impossible State, Dr. Victor Cha and I have the pleasure of having Sung Ho Shin and also Chad Carroll from South Korea both joining us remotely, of course, to talk about what's going on and what they've been doing in their studies. Sung Ho, I want to start with you. You wrote a really compelling paper for the national interest. The national interest is asking scholars to discuss what would happen if Joe Biden wins and what would happen to North Korea and South Korea and how would the United States in an administration under Joe Biden treat the negotiations that President Trump has started with North Korea and how would that go with South Korea? Can you give us a sense of what you thought and what you wrote? Yes, sure. The thing is, lots of people expect that given very unorthodox approach taken by Mr. Trump, especially in dealing with uh, Kim Jong-un, meeting with him and all that, Biden's policy and his team will be more uh, go back to the traditional approach, taking all the precautions, laying out the conditions, and even very critical of uh, Mr. Trump's very active engagement with Kim Jong-un at the personal level. But at the same time, at the end of the day, that process will require much longer uh, processing and rethinking about how to deal with North Korea. And then uh, it will take some time before they come up with their final answer to how to deal with North Korea. But for me, I suspect that answer will be still end up with same basic uh, diplomacy with North Korea, other than very drastic departure from the Trump's policy. Why? Because I think uh, there are not many other options other than uh, engaging North Korea diplomatically. First of all, still, whether Trump or Mr. Biden, war is not the option they can think of, especially under the circumstances. Uh, you can uh, think about what will be the you know, domestic or foreign policy priority for the Biden administration at the especially early stage. You can think of all the other challenges domestically, or internationally. So you don't want to have another crisis on the Korean Peninsula with North Korea. So uh, they will uh, eventually take a much more cautious approach in dealing with North Korea. So that's the first reason I think eventually Biden will have kind of same engagement, diplomatic approach uh, towards Kim Jong-un. And uh, in doing so, I still think Biden may have uh, some new opportunity in dealing with the North Korea situation. Most of all, I think the two uh, Korean leaders he's going to deal with will be quite different from the previous administration. I mean, when he was under uh, vice president of Obama. First, yes, he will deal with Kim Jong-un, same Kim Jong-un from the Obama administration, but same person, but Kim Jong-un's will uh, be different approach. He will be much more open to kind of a negotiation or on his nuclear program, looking for more of an economic opportunity. Of course, he will not give up everything uh, very easily or from the very beginning. But if there is a kind of step-by-step negotiation with the U.S., I think he could be flexible compared to during the Obama administration when he was very much 
in difficult position as a young leader just succeed his uh, father's position. So that's one thing, one different Kim Jong-un that Biden will be dealing with. The second leader situation is a South Korean counterpart. President Moon Jae-in has been very active in his engagement policy towards North Korea, which is very different from previous South Korean leadership under the conservative government. And during the Obama administration, uh, Biden had to watch these two Korea engaged in kind of a very tit-for-tat military provocation and the response by the hardline policy from the South Korea. And Obama had no other choice but to support his South Korean counterpart. In that process, it was very difficult to you know, engage with North Korea in the nuclear front. Now Biden will have very different dynamics. He has not only Kim Jong-un more open for the diplomacy, but also South Korean counterpart, who is very much supportive of that kind of U.S. engagement with North Korea. So I see there might be some uh, new chances, as long as Biden thinks diplomacy is the only option with North Korea. Thank you, Dr. Sheen. Before I bring in Chad O'Carroll, I want to ask Victor Cha to weigh in on what you just said. Thanks, Andrew. So I think that there is a lot of truth to what Sungho is saying. I think the next administration, particularly Biden administration, will have to deal with North Korea. North Korea may force their hand in the sense that they may put themselves on the radar screen by undertaking some sort of actions to compel a new administration to deal with them right away. I think like every administration will want to do a bottom-up policy review with regard to North Korea, but that policy review can often be shaped by actions that the North Koreans take in the aftermath of the election. So, for example, when the Obama administration was in the middle of their policy review, North Korea carried out some long-range missile tests and eventually a nuclear test that forced, you know, even an engagement-oriented president like Obama, right, because, you know, he opened relations with Cuba, he did the Iran deal, right, did all these sorts of things and was interested in doing something with North Korea, you know, his hand was forced in that sense. So, you know, we could be in a similar situation like that for President Biden. I think the big decision that the Biden administration will have to make on North Korea will be the extent to which it's going to do diplomacy and go back to the old playbook, which is the Yongbyon nuclear facility, trying to shut it down, uh, something like that in exchange for sanctions relief, which is just a black hole. I mean, we've done it, you know, three times already and it's not succeeded or whether they're going to try something different. And so something different would be things like looking for other ways to cap the program, basically folding a threat reduction strategy into a denuclearization strategy by focusing on things like stopping the production of more fissile material, maybe a test ban agreement, a missile technology control agreement that limits the distance and the payload of their missiles, It would be attacked, I'm certain, by the Republicans as being essentially accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. But the reality is, is that this going back to Yongbyon again is just useless, right? It's not achieving anything. And in the meantime, as we've seen over four years of Trump, they're just augmenting their capabilities and they're just turning out more, you know, uranium and plutonium based weapons and longer range missiles and possibly a submarine launched ballistic missile and possibly even a MIRVED ballistic missile, you know, something that people in the intelligence community are quite worried about. So 
you know, I think that for all these reasons, there are going to be some difficult choices they have to make. And there's going to have to be some framing and finessing of the policy if they want to try to do new things that don't look like they're accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, because, you know, they will come under attack from that uh, almost immediately. Victor, correct me if I'm wrong, but during the last four years of the Trump administration, we still don't really have a full accounting of what the North Koreans actually have in terms of their nuclear arsenal, in terms of their their missile capabilities, in terms of their development. We don't have that, right? No, no, we don't have that. I mean, to be fair to the Trump administration, they're not the only ones. I mean, the previous agreements also pretty much got to the point where North Korea had to provide a declaration of all their capabilities. And that's when everything ground to a halt. And under Trump, I mean, the big difference was we had these three high-level meetings between the two leaders, but no real denuclearization steps on the ground at all, including, you know, a inventorying of their capabilities. What we do know is that they've pretty much gone unrestrained for the last four years. And so, you know, we, we at CSIS have done studies on some of the facilities that provide the feedstock for nuclear fuel from which they reprocess plutonium and enriched uranium for nuclear weapons. You know, we've looked at the Shinpo shipyard where they, we think the SLBM capability um, is being developed. All these things are evidence of a growing capability, but we still don't have a full accounting of that. Dr. Sheen, you're sitting in, in South Korea and Seoul and you're looking to your north and you don't have a full accounting from the North Koreans. What are the prospects for moving forward, whether it's the Biden administration or a continuation of the Trump administration, with really no common ground for exactly what we're, we're talking about here? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, the thing is, first of all, from the South Korean perspective, yes, uh, North Korea's nuclear development is always a very serious uh, business and matter for our national security. Yet at the same time, as Victor said, we try so many different pressure or coercive diplomacy or engagement with North Korea. But so far, what's going on is uh, North Korea is really, really uh, wants to have that capability. And it will be very difficult for anybody to persuade North Korea or force North Korea to give up their weapon program completely. So I think it reached a point where we think like, oh, if we cannot completely denuclearize North Korea in especially a short period of time, what could be the next uh, best alternative strategy? And I think we came to almost that kind of stage where we try to become more realistic about denuclearization. So second best outcome is still try to put a cap on their nuclear capability as possible as we can. That means at least uh, no more tests and no more nuclear development and missile tests. And then start from there and try to persuade them with both some pressure and also whatever the rewards, then if they can at least start partially moving towards denuclearization, also we can engage with them diplomatically. So that, I think, has become a kind of more practical approach uh, taken by South Korea these days, especially under the, this kind of progressive government. And I think Korean public also are quite supportive of that kind of approach because other alternative would be we will have a military crisis or confrontation on the Korean peninsula with possible Second Korean War. 
So that's the kind of last thing the Korean people want. Thank you. I want to turn to our colleague, Chad O'Carroll, who is the CEO and founder of the Korea Risk Group and NK News. Chad, you've been tracking what's going on in North Korea with regard to COVID. And can you tell us about what your research has shown? Well, yeah, it's nearly eight months now since North Korea closed the border in January and still there are officially no cases of COVID, even despite that redefector who crossed back into Kaesong in July. But when you look at that conclusion, you have to consider that, that according to the WHO, there have only been 3,000 people who have been tested for the virus in a country of 26 million. So you do the math, it's not really much of an indicator. But one thing that we've detected, interestingly, um, since this Kaesong redefection case, which I should clarify to listeners, there was a lot of confusion, I think, in media about this because the North Koreans were very vague in how they presented this. They said that there was a suspected case of COVID and then they said there was an uncertain result. The WHO even echoed that, but they still a week later claimed that the country was virus-free. Interestingly, since then, over a month now, we've noticed that North Korean state media has actually stopped saying it's virus-free. It used to triumphantly state that we are proud the virus has not entered the country, etc. They've stopped doing that for some reason. And yet, we've seen so many contradictions in how they're approaching this. So on the one hand, we see things like the date for resuming school, university activities, that got pushed back from March to April to May to June to July, then to August, and now another 10-day delay. And yet, if that's an effort to mitigate against a possible threat, you have at the same time preparations going for the mass games, which is, you know, thousands of gymnasts in the centre of Pyongyang. You've also got military parade practice going on for October 10th, 75th anniversary of the Workers' Party of Korea. And we've now found out today from a source that there are students and youth are doing torch parade practices in the centre of town. And if that wasn't enough, they also did a, on July 27th, an assembly of Korean war veterans. So people in their 80s and 90s all huddled together. In it. So there's lots of confusing indicators out there. And I guess my sense of that there is confidence in Pyongyang, at least, that they don't have the virus. They, I mean, to go ahead with, with all these military parades and ev events scheduled for October, it's really Russian roulette. At the same time, there is concern or maybe an effort to make it look like they are following suit per what South Korea is doing, what's been happening in China, and that there are precautions at the school university level certainly at ports of entry and things like that. But it's an interesting situation and overall quite confusing, to be honest. Victor, I want to ask you for your views on this. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, when I want to figure out what's going on with regard to COVID North Korea, I read the stuff that Chad's group puts out, so I can't disagree with any of that. I would say one of the implications of all this is that, you know, for all this time, you know, as Sangwa talked about, as part of the North Korean nuclear strategy, we've been using sanctions on North Korea as a way to try to compel them to denuclearize, to come to the negotiating table. And so one of the challenges there has always been, you know, the sanctions regime is leaky, and in particular, China is not very cooperative and things. And one of the inadvertent implications of these COVID measures in North Korea is that they basically have shut down the border in terms of trade with China. 
And so as a result of COVID precautions, there is effectively a sanction on Chinese trade with North Korea that's self-imposed. And then when you combine that problem, right, and prior to that, trade was over 90, 96% of their total bilateral trade of North Korea's trade was with, with North Korea. There's a huge drop there. And if you combine that with these floods and the monsoons that I'm sure Sungho and Chad can talk about coming to North Korea, you know, they're getting hit, you know, three times successively by these floods that causing the leadership in North Korea to talk publicly about disaster relief. You know, Kim Jong-un is out there like ordering elites to go and do something to help you. Who knows what they'll do, but ordering them to go do things that they're completely focused on this KCNA as if it were CNN is showing live shots of flooding and things happening in North Korea. It's like a triple whammy, right? All these things, you know, the COVID, the sanctions, and then the flooding, which is creating food shortages, have really put the country in a pretty dire situation. So even if there are not that many cases of COVID in the country, whether it's because they've tested only 3,000 or whether it's because they're confident so that they do these other activities that Chad is talking about, there are still all of these other problems that they have to deal with, which in many ways are almost unprecedented and certainly all coming at the same time. And they won't ask for help. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They, and I mean, they, you know, I think they are asking for some help. And I think uh, most of the NGOs realize that there will be a food problem in the country. I mean, the U.S. Department of Agriculture the other week said the 60 percent population in North Korea will suffer a food shortage. So it's pretty serious. But I'll let Chad speak on some of that. Yeah, just one other thing. Like there's a fourth problem as well, which is economic mismanagement that they've been surprisingly transparent about. It goes back to December, the plenum. Kim Jong-un was talking about the possibility of North Koreans having to tighten their belts, something he promised wouldn't happen when he was in the early years of his leadership. But even since then, we've seen multiple state media things talking about corrupt uh, officials, serious mistakes in economic mismanagement, transparency about the country lagging behind the rest of the world, absurdities accumulating in the economic sector. I'm quoting literally from Rodong Shinman right now, severe level difficulties on the horizon. And then, of course, we have the serious problems in Pyongyang General Hospital construction, which I think probably is going to be delayed as a result. Helpfully, with the natural disasters that have happened, they have a, a, an external blame for that. But you know, this is culminating into the fact that in August, we've seen Kim Jong-un admit that the five-year economic plan of 2016 has failed. And that means there's going to be a Congress in January and a new economic plan set up. So I, I think it's fit to say this is a really, really, really bad year. And certainly, I mean, everyone is going through difficult times around the world right now from a government perspective. But this is really something unprecedented in the last 20, 25 years in North Korea. And I think it's really going to be a tough year for Kim Jong-un the next 12 months. Okay, so I, this is a question to all of you. Given what Chad just said, given the massive problems, the triple, quadruple whammy that Chad just laid out, doesn't this make North Korea and Kim Jong-un want to cling to their nuclear program even more because this is their only sense of pride on an international stage and it's their only lever? If I may, but at the same time, they cannot eat nuclear weapon. I mean, they need the food. <laughs> So That's a good point. Yeah, I think as Chad said, not only they have this very serious economic challenge, double or triple whammy, 
But uh, one thing also I noticed that is, in that sense, this Kim Jong-un regime might be a little different from his father's regime, that they've been very transparent about all these economic difficulties and situation. I mean, they're admitting all those wrongdoing and corruption and all that. And Kim Jong-un is saying himself about all this problem inside North Korea. That is not usually the case. The dear great leader never admit any kind of failure when it comes to his regime. So that's the, one of the reasons why I think Kim Jong-un could be more open for economic reform or he is looking for economic opportunity. That may give him a kind of more extra incentive to come up to this nuclear negotiation. And I think this could open up a kind of new diplomatic opportunity for both South Korea and in the long run United States and getting North Korea coming back to the nuclear negotiation. Of course, that in and itself does not guarantee that North Korea will give up all this nuclear capacity once and for all. Yet still, it could provide much more a stronger incentive for North Korea to come up to the uh, nuclear negotiation. And in particular, I think South Korea may try to use this as a kind of humanitarian case to engage with North Korea with some kind of aid, support, and that could lead to a more kind of new uh, diplomatic round of engagement with Kim. And that could also even lead to the uh, opening between Biden and Kim Jong-un. So that's the kind of, I think, what become a good scenario from the South Korean perspective. Just on Biden, I just want to remind everyone that in November 2019, KCNA said, rabid dogs like Biden can hurt lots of people. They must be beaten to death with a stick before it's too late. This is, in my opinion, the clear North Korean preference for Donald Trump. I don't think they're interested in Biden particularly. I think you can still see this in the fact that we still see a special space carved out in North Korean state media, high-level statements, particularly from Kim Yo-jong twice this year, talking about Trump. I've seen mostly silence, in fact, in the last year on Biden, but I don't think they would be particularly interested in a slow, drawn-out, traditional diplomatic process at this stage, especially with all of these problems. They need something prompt to relieve this pressure, and I do think Trump is the only one that they feel can can pr- probably offer that although we have to see after this bob woodward book is published next week and all these letters are published <laughs> well and and certainly when you say a more traditional diplomatic approach you're not going to have glowing letters going back and forth between a potential president biden and kim jong-un the way you have with trump and and kim you know it's just it's inconceivable and and there isn't going to be that kind of channel of communication at that level. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, there won't be these gushing letters going back and forth between the two leaders. I mean, I think, you know, President Biden will, of course, remain open because the door has already been open to leader level meetings now, something that had been taboo before Trump. So that door will remain open. Maybe for, in a Washington White House visit. I mean, who knows? Anything's possible. But I think you're right. And as Chad said, you know, the North Koreans have a clear preference in this election. I mean, they want Trump again. They don't want Biden because that means like real diplomacy, real substantive negotiations where we are focused like a laser beam on their capabilities and denuclearization and care less about the show. That's the complete opposite of what the North Koreans want. They want someone who's interested in the show and that will agree to things 
that allow them to basically keep their capabilities while declaring all these wonderful accomplishments that have been made. So yeah, for certain, I think they would prefer Trump. And let's be clear here. What you guys are saying doesn't mean that a President Biden administration would indicate that there'd be a level of bureaucracy to this negotiation. What what you're saying is there'd be a real true level of expertise. Right. I mean, the North Korea issue has, this, this is such a tortured issue. It's been so long and it's become so politicized so quickly that, you know, in any negotiation, regardless of what level is taking place, you know, key decisions are being made and they're being decided in the Oval Office. They're not being decided anywhere else, right, on North Korea. So yes, you, what you would have is experts uh, that would demand at the working level and that could be high level working level. I mean, the Iran deal was high level. I mean, there were ministers, right, that were negotiating the details of these agreements. And so that's the sort of negotiation that you'd want to see and not one that is, you know, substanceless. Or what we had during Trump was we had working level negotiations, but nothing of importance was discussed in those working level negotiations because the North Koreans refused to talk about nuclear weapons and said that belonged only to the leader to speak about those issues. And as soon as the flattery was over, there was nothing left to talk about, right? Right. And as soon as the leaders met and, you know, we want to talk about nuclear weapons, they didn't want to talk about them, right? Or they wanted to just give up Yongbyon, you know, the same old thing. So I think it would look quite different in a Trump versus a Biden administration when it comes to dealing with North Korea. Like I said at the beginning, though, I think the urgency will be there because North Korea has a knack of forcing themselves up the ladder of items that a new administration has to deal with. And particularly if they are in this difficult, dire situation, it is not uncommon for them as in the past to lash out as a way to try to get attention and to try to get help. The second thing I want to say is on China, Xi Jinping sent a gushing communication to the North Korean leadership on the day of the Public Founders Day. And so China has no interest in seeing internal problems in North Korea leading to instability in the country. So, you know, they will find a way when the situation gets really bad to help backstop the regime. It won't allow the regime to prosper, but it'll help them to survive and stabilize things. Um, And so that will always be there for the North Koreans. And so for that reason, although things are bad, unless we're talking about like a COVID outbreak, unless things are bad on food, you know, I think they will have the China channel. I still feel like the wild card here, and this is why I watch Chad stuff so carefully, is the COVID thing, because they have no public health infrastructure to speak of to deal with something like this. 3,000 tests. I mean, they don't even have the ability to process those tests, right? I mean, they need help in processing those tests. And sure, they have ways of doing their own quarantine that can be quite brutal, if you think about it. But still, I mean, this... It has always been my concern that the Achilles heel of this regime has been some sort of public health crisis because it's so, they're prepared for a lot of things and can, prepared to endure a lot of things. But this is one, especially given the nastiness of this virus, that would really do some damage to the regime. I don't know if Chad feels the same way. Well, I, I just thought, can you imagine if there is a breakout and it's traced directly back to the pomp and pageantry of the 75th founding of the Workers' Party of Korea and you see mass games, torch parades, huge military parades, basically serving as the Petri dish. I mean, that would just be so bad. And that's why it seems to me like such an unnecessarily risky gamble to do that. Uh, You have to be so sure that there's going to be no risk. And I've stood at two of those parades, 2017, 2018, and 
people are packed in closely and marching in front of you. I mean, it's just a perfect place for a virus like that to, to breed. And so I, on the one hand, it seems a, a, a sign of confidence. On the other hand, it seems extremely risky. Well, before we go, Chad, how can we follow your work? I know you have a podcast that listeners can check out. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. The NK News podcast is hosted by my colleague, Jacko Zvetslu. You just search NK News on iTunes and also on our website, nknews.org. We've got news, analysis, data, etc. So just feel free to come by anytime and hopefully you should find something of interest. Absolutely. And Dr. Sheen, where can we find all of your work? Oh, you can visit our JSIS Seoul National University website. And there's all kinds of faculty webpage where you can find my old uh, publication and old works. Terrific. Gentlemen, thank you very much for this terrific insight today. Fascinating discussion. Victor, as always, great being with you. Thank you, guys. And we'll talk again soon. Hopefully, we'll have a better understanding of what's going on with all of these issues in the months to come. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.